Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand independent politics and media podcast. We are running the budget episode this morning. This will go live today. Uh, so we're recording Sunday morning on the 29th. And I hope to have this up later this afternoon. We're joined by our economics spokesperson, uh, Paul Callant. Uh, you'll know him if you've are been we, listening. Are we, a, are we a political party? <laughs> we made the transition. Yeah, we're finally there. We're finally doing it. Um, I just, I was lost for a term to use to introduce you. Uh, but our, our audience will know you well. Um, you've done a range of economics content for us, both in article form um, and on uh, different episodes. And I've also got uh, our other co-host, Philip Nanestad here as well. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Kia ora, thank you. I'm alive. Hey, great. And we all are, we all are. Everyone's come through, everyone's come through COVID okay? Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, lingering, lingering cough, but um, otherwise fine. So thankful that uh, symptoms were quite mild. So if if we're five uh, percent dumber than usual, it's long COVID. It's not yeah. us. Um, mm. Our prep was fine. Our brains are working at one hundred percent, but due to Jacinda's negligence and our weak COVID policies, our long COVID is impacting our uh, intellectual capacity in a way that we can't control. Yeah, and that's even for those of us who didn't have COVID. Me and Phil, especially for us. Yeah, it's um, this is how it is. So this morning we want to talk about the budget. Uh, we've had a week to sit on it, uh, to analyze and, and look at some of the specifics. What's happening? It's a big document. Uh, we wanted to bring you some proper analysis and critique instead of the rolling mountain of shit that we tend to get from the economic pages uh, in New Zealand media these days. Going to start with, with some of the specific policies. Um, Paul, how do you want to run those out? How, how do we want to cover those? Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe um, I can just um, throw out some of the kind of top items, big ticket items from the budget. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you guys can give us your takes as well. But, uh, you know, it was kind of billed as the sort of climate and health budget. That was the, those were the two big things. Um, that Graham Robertson and, and the government were focusing on with this budget. Uh, and, you know, so, so some of those big ticket items, were obviously there was a lot of spending in health. Um, and then I think last week we were discussing this, um, you know, that some of these sums seem like large amounts of money, but in the, in the kind of historical context of, you know, underfunding to various um, government services, uh, in particular health, but um, all across the government really, you know, I think we have to keep that in mind when we're talking about some of the numbers. But um, yeah, health spending was one. Uh, obviously, the government have um, been setting up uh, Health NZ and the Maori Health Authority. Uh, and there's kind of a lot of money that's going in to, you know, help set that up, um, both, I guess, for the, you know, actually uh, setting it up, but also kind of writing off um, a bunch of debt from the DHBs that were incurred from the DHBs. So some of that spending you know, well, it's not all on, I guess, operational uh, type things. Um, a lot of it is to kind of shift across to this new setup. Um, and interesting there on the, on the health spending is that I saw some criticism from um, Te Pāti Māori uh, around the amount of health spending, of the overall health budget that was allocated to the Māori Health Authority. So um, they were saying that 0.7% um, of the overall health budget, which is obviously 
pretty minuscule, um, is going to the Māori Health Authority. Um, so uh, another thing that I thought was quite interesting on health um, was, you know, that there's been a lot of conversation around dental um, and inadequacy around dental care in New Zealand. So, you know, something like 40% of the public uh, avoid going to the dentist because of cost. Uh, and that's been consistent for many years. Um, pretty shameful you know, statistic as, as far as I'm concerned. But one of the initiatives in the budget was to increase the... Um, the grant, the recoverable or non-recoverable grant, I should say, for um, beneficiaries to uh, seek dental care. So that's gone up from $350 to $1,000. So that's kind of like, you know, a pretty significant increase, but there are obviously issues with that going through the social welfare system. We know um, that, you know, access uh, can be difficult to come by um, for, for that money. It's quite a lot of bureaucracy and, and you know, uh, the, the sort of poor cultural aspects of um, the social welfare system that, that we've talked about a lot on the show. So that's that's health. Another big thing was the cost of living um, package that the government announced. So there's a $350 payment uh, for anyone earning under $70,000 a year, except for beneficiaries and superannuants, because, you know, they don't need it. Um, they're already getting this, uh, this you know, all, the, all this generous money and help from the government. So, but no, of course we jest and these are the people that need the support the most uh, and the government deliberately decided to exclude them from that. So that was a big talking point. A couple more things and then um, keen to get your guys' reckons, but the uh, public transport uh, subsidies that I guess came in uh, how, a few months ago now when the government was responding to the cost of living crisis uh, and brought in a 50% subsidy on public transport fees for three months. Uh, and they also reduced the price of petrol temporarily for three months. So they extended those, um, although they didn't extend them permanently as some are speculating in the media ahead of the budget. So they only uh, extended the, um, them both for another few months and then extended the public transport subsidies permanently for uh, community services card holders. Um, so it's something, but again, I think, um, <coughs> All this is kind of showing, like, in my view, I've kind of, you know, everyone comes up with those uh, anecdotes for what, what is this budget? Is it a backwards budget, national government backwards budget, and so on? So for me, it's like, it's very much a, like a New Zealand labour budget, you know, like a few a few little things, a few incremental changes, but, you know, by no means enough um, and wholly inadequate in, in terms of the big picture. Anyway, I'll finish on this, but the um, there's quite a lot of spending uh, going towards climate initiatives. Uh, and, and public transport subsidies are, you know, part of that. But a lot of the stuff that we talked about in the last podcast on the emissions reduction plan, uh, this budget, I guess, funds quite a lot of those those things. And we can go into a bit more detail about those later on. But yeah, things like agriculture, um, electric vehicles, uh, there, there's, a, there's a little bit in there, although that has its flaws as well. So anyway, that's enough from me. Quite a bit of kind of specifics, but keen to get your guys' uh, hot takes as to, as to what you thought. Yeah, the first thing that I was just shocked by is that the dental subsidy or like the non-recoverable um, dental grant was previously only $350. Yeah. Because anyone who's had like significant dental work knows that it's nowhere near enough. And even topping it up to a thousand, uh, in a in a climate where the progressive line is bring dental into healthcare fully and make it free, is just a bit of a joke uh, and you have to wonder how much of that they expect to actually be picked up 
do they have a, a spreadsheet with like, okay, we're, we're increasing this non-recoverable, but we expect like two people to use it because Ministry of Social Development is just going to stop from, from getting it. Yeah, exactly. Actually, just one other thing on, on that. So I, th- I think, I believe beforehand the $350 was only for emergency dental grants. So that's like when your dental health deteriorates to such a condition that you need to go to the hospital and seek emergency care, you know, and the, I think this is the problem with, uh, you know, that's, I guess, a, a fitting um, example of a bunch of these problems, right? Like we, we you know, leave these preventative um, or, or um, preventable issues for so long and, and inadequately give people the preventative care that they deserve and need for so long that it gets into this kind of um, situation. But with the increase to 1,000, I think what also happens in the budget, I don't exactly know uh, these details, but I think it extends the um, extends the range of care that you can seek, which is which is good. So um, I believe people would now be able to use that grant for not just emergency but general dental care. Although I still believe that I saw, I saw some other commentary that there are still some restrictions around preventative care. So you know, I don't know if you're going if you're going to the dentist for a checkup or to get a regular hygienist clean or something like that, you may not be able to claim it for that, which is ridiculous. Remember, you need a means that. test for the means test because if you don't do that, there's not an opportunity to means test the means test of the means test. Yeah, well, the, the means test wasn't mean enough, so we needed to increase it. Like, yeah, like a lot of the, the health spending that was most of the kind of big headlines when it first came out, um, I think is, is interesting and kind of indicative of how this, um, I don't know about the whole government, but definitely the kind of, what do they call it? The kitchen table. Kitchen cabinet kitchen cabinet cabinet they seem to think about things right it's very uh it's recovering from the hole that we've dug ourselves in health by having this kind of decentralized responsibility through dhbs that have been forced to rack up debt due to spending caps and all these different like acquisition systems um that haven't been like as integrated as people with a more kind of holistic understanding of health have been calling for for years right because we used to i know i keep saying this but we used to always hear about uh, that the, you, you know, during national, early on in national uh, health economists, people were saying that we were like over $2 billion behind health spending every year. So if you imagine that period racked up and then, you know, we still haven't caught up from that and problems only spiral in the health system when you're not up to par, right? Or when um, you have a pandemic. Only snowball. And then a pandemic hit. So if you look at this uh, record health spending in that context, it's, you know, barely kind of, scraping the surface of acceptable, regardless of where it's going. And then as Paul said, like more importantly, most of that is just kind of moving numbers across in spreadsheets. It's not actually increasing operational capacity to do stuff. They're just preparing it to be organized in a different way. So I imagine if you presented this to uh, a centrist in the Labour Party, they would say it is transformational because we're transforming, transforming the system from one that is completely inadequate to our needs delivered through all these different DHBs into one that's a bit more centralized and able to kind of face the capacities that we need to be able to do now. But in reality, that's that's like a structural, uh, it's an adjustment to the way that it's being performed, but it's not a change in ability to do those things. So if, if they were being honest during the key years when they were saying that we didn't have enough capacity, then they have to admit now that we're still not able to do that because they haven't spent anywhere near the amount it would take to catch up for that decade of neglect. Plus, if, if they're correct that this is, getting us up to par the last five years over which they, for some reason, refused to do that, right? There's no explanation for that. 
um, five years of neglect of the health system. If this is what was needed, right? This is the problem with this uh, rhetoric. And they still use that rhetoric, right? They still say, oh, national left us in a hole. Um, okay, cool. What are you doing about it? And, you know, I think the centralization, hopefully, you know, we, we often say there needs to be systemic and structural change that could be good. We'll see if it is or not over the next, like, number of years. Mm. But it doesn't help what's happening on the ground right now. And the irony of this are these lines being run out by by Labour um, for the health budget aspects of this budget in a in a time when allied health workers are having to go on like maybe potentially rolling strikes because the government is not going to put up enough money to pay them effectively. Um, there's been like say staffing level issues forever. There aren't enough people. You know, it's it's very galling because whenever Grant Robertson or whoever stands up at the podium, he gets to make these claims in a completely context-free environment. He he is very rarely challenged about okay, so but why are these people striking then? You know, if if we're on the right track with health, uh, why why are our hospitals overloaded? Why are these ones are still fucking rotting. Yeah, it's it's frustrating. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, yeah, you, you're, you're totally right. Like, it really remains to be seen whether some of those, like, underlying operational things, um, uh, you know, we know that the health system was in need of a restructure, right? Um, and I think there were some good arguments that were put forward as to why the DHB model was, was failing. Um, but, you know, you're, you're totally right. It doesn't address uh, those kind of ongoing issues and uh, you know safety for frontline workers conditions um and so on and you know we've seen that over a number of years actually not not just in the last one or two years but since the start of this government that you know there's been so much more industrial action going on by the public sector um because you know they've had enough and they can't they can't retain staff um they're struggling to retain and attract staff and like <laughs> why would you you know want to be i mean obviously our our um, public service workers are, you know, doing an incredible job, um, but you can't blame them for, you know, like looking at their work and reassessing, you know, is this like, is this worth it, you know, for um, for the kind of money that you're getting uh, and for the kind of, you know, stress um, and risks that you put yourself through um, in those environments every day. So we can only hope that future budgets will kind of address those things. Yeah, a lot better. But one thing I wanted to pick up on the cost of living payment was I was I thought it was quite striking that just in the last week, um, the Conservative government in the UK, so this is quite a right-wing, um, <laughs> you know, party in, in the UK, have also brought out a package in response to cost of living pressures. They've been under some pressure for some time by the opposition Labour Party, who are, you know, if anything, um, more centrist and, and right-wing than the Labour Party over here. That They've been responding to their calls for a windfall tax um, on the massive profits that energy, energy companies have been making in the UK. And so the, the UK Conservative government has kind of caved to this pressure, brought in a windfall tax, and also brought in some cost of living payments similar to the government has done here. But those payments were much, much more generous. So I think there was uh, £400, so that's, I mean, almost double, right, in New Zealand dollars, uh, of a rebate on um, energy bills. And then there was an additional payment that was going towards beneficiaries as well. So instead of uh, you know exempting or not not giving the payment to beneficiaries and those most in need, 
they're actually giving more, which you know you'd think if anything was was the right thing to do. So I think that really put the inadequacy of that cost of living payment into perspective for me. Um, and it's actually going to be really interesting later on in the year when that uh, you know expires and your petrol's more expensive than what it was when the government brought in that subsidy, right? So these costs are only increasing. Um, and yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the government actually responds to that when they come under some pressure. I do want to raise that there has been some interesting narrative around the um, the energy payment in the UK in particular in terms of the way that it's being delivered. You know, we say um, means testing is bad, uh, but one of the things apparently with this UK energy payment is that it's going to per house. So right. uh, if you if you have five houses, um, you know, and those aren't, aren't rented or whatever, you collect £2,000. Uh, so it, in some respects, it is intentionally it has intentionally been set up to favor the wealthy not just to get past not just to be like a means testing argument but to send a significant uh, amount to people who what, what we say don't need it and i am very aware of the the risks of that of that rhetoric yeah no totally and it, it's it's a good point um and i guess like you know we shouldn't be looking to the uk conservative party no, for sure. For these things, but um, I guess that just brought it into context for me. And it's still better, though, right? Like, it, well, I mean, it's just those headline numbers, and you know, like you, like you rightly point out, I'm sure that there's lots of um, sort of trickery uh, behind the scenes, which makes it, um, you know, less generous and, and more problematic than what it otherwise appears. But um, yeah, and I mean, there's a, there's a whole interesting sort of debate around around that, um, you know universalizing these um, kind of things versus means testing and stuff. And that's probably a whole nother podcast. But you reminded me of one one good thing actually about this payment is that it is individualized, right? The, the $350 New Zealand. And I mean, that's that's been a massive critique of the welfare system over a number of years, right? That it um, punishes beneficiaries even more like when, when they're in... Um, I mean, this one still punishes beneficiaries because it's not given to them. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that kind of, that seems to be an issue that with a few of these things is that the targeting is so um, pathological almost, like needing to carve out specific groups of people because they already receive assistance to not receive this additional assistance. It feels very um, paternalistic um, in the way that it's so careful about like, oh, hang on, this line item might interfere with this other line item. It, it really gets back to what we've talked about before with this Labour government is that the... Um, the kind of self-imposed austerity mindset that they has doesn't seem to be about money. It's purely ideological. Mm. It's not, you know, they can afford another $34 million. That's not, that's not the issue. It's that they're, they're worried that they'll look like they're not being technocratic enough. Or um, not being cruel enough to the poor. Uh, and in some respects, it feels like. Oh, hundred percent. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this over the last week. There's been a lot of commentary around the squeeze middle, right? We've heard, we've heard a lot about this concept of the squeeze middle. The, the corset class. <laughs> um, yeah, and, the, and and I think, you know, it, it did seem like this budget was was targeting the middle, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of middle classes in New Zealand quite deliberately. And like you said, Carl, um, deliberately not, or like deliberately avoiding uh, giving more to the people that need it most, you know, and and I think this concept of the squeeze middle, yeah, it's 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 quite uh, what's the word? I don't know. It's it's underhanded, I guess, because it's what it's what it's what it's showing is that yes, you know, there's people that are doing it 
really like they're doing really well out of society and and um you know people getting tax breaks or or corporations um, with huge profits around this time you know where cost of living pressures are increasing but it also kind of um subtly reinforces the that kind of takers narrative that we often hear about in new zealand where um you know beneficiary bashing gets brought up uh when there's economic pressures on you know like politicians like to uh, blame uh, the people that are that are doing it most tough um, for you know working people's cost of living pressures and you know I think it's it's a it's a narrative that yeah we really need to push back on um, and yeah it's it's of, often um, unemployed people are pitted against low income working people in this way you know and it's and it's a right wing tactic to to create further division in society and actually get the focus away from the people that are you know making huge gains and profits out of this economic model so i mean squeezed yeah. middle if you think about it is quite a kind of radically ideological term because what mm. does squeezed mean in this context right squeezed means you're not doing as well as you feel like you should be doing i.e that you were doing right and then it's compared to what like if you're in the middle by definition you're not struggling as much as people who are under you in this um in this you know tra- trapezoid of bullshit that has been kind of constructed Look, so it's costing yeah. me, it's cost me a hundred dollars more a week to get to my, my office job that I've got and is stable and feeds my family. Yeah. I mean, it's that, that's, that's the people who are being targeted, right? Because those people are voters and national and labor stress about those people more than they do about uh, unemployed, underemployed, working class people who can't make ends meet. Uh, but that's what it's, it's explicitly saying that it's, it's saying like the people we're worrying about is people who were okay and now aren't. In, in that phrase, they're acknowledging that there's a section of people who weren't okay and they have no plans to address that. And that's yeah. just kind of part of the undergirding structure of society that they're perfectly happy with. That's like, that's a really radical talking point that I don't think people have pushed back and on. And this is the thing, right? Is, and this is why I, part of what I was alluding to just by the, the wave of garbage takes out of our media um, and other politicians around a whole range of stuff in this budget is that they just accept it as a term. They're just like, hey, someone said it. I guess we just have to use it all the time. We're going to use it 300 times an article. Fuck it. Yeah, it's, it's almost a, a sort of a fact that they, that they keep repeating uh, where it's so clearly a, a narrative. But just following on from what you were saying, Philip, I think this is kind of like the self-defeating nature of centrist politics, right? Is that, you know, NZ Labour go, oh, it's this, this middle section of society that um, are the voters. And so we're going to, provide more for them at the expense of everyone else um and then that further disenfranchises the people at the at the bottom rungs you know um and then they just complain that they they don't vote so you know we shouldn't like <laughs> we shouldn't sort of um, provide services for them or whatever we shouldn't focus on them um and it kind of keeps reinforcing itself um, i want to talk about that 350 uh dollar payment as well um obviously we've said that it was carved out to a specific subsection of of individuals but what do we think about the idea that it will be a further inflation driver yeah i mean i've been doing a lot of things about this because it's you know it, this has come up in relation to tax cuts as well right like national proposed um tax cuts and then you know labor have said that those are inflationary and then they come in with the cost of living payment and national says that that's inflationary um and obviously inflation is just a, a big kind of a big topic at the moment so people are looking for ways in which to 
um, say that everything's inflationary, basically. And in um, the last couple of years, we also, you know, we had the uh, COVID payments, and we know those were incredibly dangerously inflationary for the housing market well, uh, well, in terms I, of how they were delivered. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's a couple of things here. So the, the quantitative easing that the Reserve Bank put in place, right, that w- was about, in my view, um, you know, increasing liquidity in the financial system, making sure that capital was still flowing, investment was still flowing at a time of huge uncertainty. This is why they, you know, reduce interest rates as much as they can um, at a time of kind of economic slowdown, right? They want to make sure that lending is still, you know, shifting around. And so because of that, um, that's, you know, money is going to go uh, around in the places that it's most lucrative, which is obviously in New Zealand context is the, the property market and particularly for existing properties. But that's also why we've seen a lot of inflation in, um, you know, consumer inflation in building materials, for example, right? Because it's it's inflating the building sector. But quite, and I think this is in a, common, a common error is that people um, sort of conflate house price inflation and, and consumer price inflation and they're different things. So, um, you know, asset inflation isn't included in, in CPI. But I guess back to the broader sort of topic around uh, is cost of living payment inflationary? Um, I think it's difficult because like if you're, if you're putting money into the economy, right? Like it's gonna create demand for goods and services at some level. And so of course that's inflationary. Like, you know, that's, that's the whole idea. Um, but you kind of you kind of balance that against like is there enough supply right and um, you know that's obviously been a huge um, issue with supply chains um, being impacted by COVID that's that's been a large chunk of our inflation actually um, coming from overseas but the things that are often neglected like we've talked about a lot on this podcast you know that the, the common narrative is that inflation is limited to you know the government's spending right the amount of money that they get like this cost of living payment government spending into the economy and you know, money sort of twirling around in the economy and going after goods and services. But what we often don't talk about is um, corporate profits, you know, which are continually like increasing. Um, and, you know, many companies, particularly the ones that are providing um, the necessities that are seeing the most increases in costs. So like our groceries and our energy bills uh, and so on, you know, those are the companies that are doing the best at the moment. Uh, and, you know, increasing profits massively. So, um, and I mean, I saw just the other day, like bank profits, um, was that ANZ or whatever, announced a $1.9 billion, like annual profit, like in one year, just the the profit that they're making off, like basically the housing market, right? Um, and that's, that's in a similar league to what we're talking about in terms of budget spending, you know? If there was a $1.9 billion spending line in the budget, we'll be talking about that because it's a huge amount of money. So anyway, you know, I, I detracted a little bit from the inflation point, but um, yeah, that's that's sort of my take is that we need to be a little bit, yeah, a little bit careful when we're talking about like different um, stimulus and stuff and fiscal stimulus um, going into the economy and how inflationary that is because there's all these other aspects, you know, that we often neglect. One of the things which just doesn't seem to happen in New Zealand media, and it, you know, it even happens in the fucking UK or, or the US, is any discussion at all about um, the need for taxing wealth, whether that's big corporates or whoever, windfall tax stuff. Um, if it's ever brought up at all, it's in terms of ruling it out. But 
it is very clear. And, you, you know, you mentioned uh, bank profits, for example, uh, but the same can be said for a number of different sectors uh, in New Zealand at the moment on the back of two years of booming business for them. Um, if we clawed some of that back uh, or whatever terminology you want to use, if, if we introduced like a, just a even a temporary tax to take a percentage of those profits back into the uh, into public ownership um, and then spend them on services or give a windfall payment um, back to the people who need it most um, or, or non-means tested or whatever, that would make a much more significant difference to the way these things are working uh, and inflation as well, likely, uh, then just throwing a bit of money here and there. But it's it's totally ruled out. It's, it's not even in the realm of possibility that we can we can do that to to corporate entities. Yeah, and I mean, if you uh, if you tried to suggest in this climate that uh, some of these record profits might be the cause of some of these price increases uh, that we call inflation, right? Um, then the response to any kind of method to address that, like a suggestion to tax uh, assets or wealth or uh, profits for some of these sectors would be, but you're just increasing the price. Then they'll, you know, they'll pass that on to the consumer. They already do. Which is, you know, that's, but that's self-defeating. You're, you're saying that you have no control over these sectors and that they're going to run roughshod over everybody. It's basically a, an admission that the, the market has failed in every sector where you're, where you're making that claim, right? Um, I want to pivot a little bit to um, the kind of broader fiscal aspects um, in the budget. And because one thing that um, it's, it seems so long ago now, but it was probably about a week before the budget got announced, um, Graham Robertson announced um, a new uh, fiscal framework, I guess, fiscal rules, um, which is going to guide Labour Party budgets going forward. So uh, he introduced a, a debt ceiling um, so, and, and there was also a change in the way that they uh, measure public debt, which kind of aligns aligns it more with um, international measures, um, commonly reported by the IMF and so on. And it kind of it, it's actually I think it's useful in terms of being able to more easily compare us our position with um, overseas, other countries overseas. Um, and it's to do with basically it's to do with how the super fund is incorporated into um, uh, net public debt. But anyway technocratic point um so the de new debt ceiling i think is 30 percent of gdp uh and that's equivalent of around 50 percent of gdp in the previous measure um so it's it's actually quite a high ceiling compared to where we are now so i think under the new measure we're somewhere around 15 between 15 and 20 percent of gdp so there's a lot of headroom under this um new debt ceiling uh and which we'll come back to in a second but the other key fiscal rule that he introduced was a spending target. So um, it's going to target surpluses of between zero and 2% of GDP. So very much that kind of budget responsibility rules, harking back a few years sort of messaging. Our favourite yeah, from years ago. Exactly. Our old listeners will remember. We spent a great deal of time <laughs> on that. <laughs> we have multiple casts, like just name budget responsibility rules. Fuck you. Yeah. No, but it's, it's very much from the Graham Robertson playbook of like, I don't think it's so much about what the rules actually are, right? It's about the message that it's sending. So it's like business community, and this is why, again, another thing that gets my nerves, all these 
pre-budget speeches are always to business audiences, right? Chamber of Commerce and this area and Business New Zealand over here. Yeah, there's one to Business New Zealand and then like in the same week, Business New Zealand trying to pull that disgusting shit uh, with the ILO uh, list. Yeah, exactly. And like, what, what are you getting out of going and presenting to them? Exactly, that's the thing, right? Because it does no good. At the end of the day, you know, there, there's a there's a party of business which these lobby groups all end up supporting anyway and, and getting in behind. And no matter how many business lunches and fiscal rules Graham Robertson does, it's gonna it's not gonna get those people outside. But anyway, yeah, I, the the headroom that the debt leaves is really is a really interesting thing because some commentators have pointed out that um, you know National have been attacking the six billion dollar allowance in this budget, so that's the amount of operational spending that's that's allocated in this budget, um, six billion, which is higher than what it has been in previous years. But it's also higher than what it is forecast for next budget and the one after. Um, and there's been, you know, attacks by national and also some comments in the media as to like with inflation um, at the moment and next year being an election year, is it going to be quite difficult for Grant Robertson to keep next year's budget within the smaller operational allowance if he's going to be tempted to want to increase spending, right, in an election year? But the um, other point that I saw Bernard Hickey raise as well is like the, the amount of headroom that's in the debt uh, ceiling kind of means that Grant Robertson has some room to move there. Um, but then that's mainly just capital expenditure, right? So investing in infrastructure and things like that, you know, there's going to be, that indicates to me that it's going to be more, there might be some big public transport infrastructure spending or something like that promised in the next budget, but there's going to be less for like, public sector salaries or like fees-free uh, extensions and those kind of more operational ongoing spending things. Yeah, I don't know. What, what do you what do you guys think about about that? Like the fiscal rules sort of set up and, and what that- I hate kind of... it. <laughs> I, like, I, I, I hate it every time because it doesn't, as you said, it's it's a narrative measure to appear like like you're running a business. You know, this, this thing that Grant Robinson has just absolutely fixated on for the last decade of trying to make- labor the party that people trust on the economy sorry you know you've been doing this and luxon is still ahead now um national party is still ahead why do you think that is it's because people don't give a shit you know uh, and it's with the people that you'd expect right there's been no no great realignment in terms of business people swinging to labor um in any more than in response to their health response to COVID, which was you know none of that was due to um robertson's kind of assiduous uh, line item management in his spreadsheet. That was because he said, here's a bunch of dollars to keep paying your workers over lockdown. And also we're saying that we're gonna keep disease out of the country this year. And that's impressive whether you're like a medium business owner, small business owner, uh, worker, that's a broadly extremely popular move unless you own a massive like international company and you just want uh, the flow of disease and humans to be maintained alongside the flow of capital. But look, to, to like, to respond to what Paul, what you were both saying before about um, Robertson doesn't gain anything from these business lunches, right? The Clint Smith point, I imagine, would be like um, oh. the same reason Luxon should go to Waitangi and get zero voters is the same reason that Robertson should speak to businesses and get zero voters. It's because they're not, they're not gaining those voters. They're both targeting Beth, who watches One News and owns a house, right? And she's like, oh, it's nice that he's like got a business plan or it's nice that Luxon isn't like openly racist. It's the same kind of two-stage performative um, thing. So it doesn't actually, like the thing is- That's far too nuanced for a 
for a talking point in the in the manner no, that no, you suggested. I guarantee, I guarantee you they'd say that. That's exactly <laughs> what they would say. Um, and that, that's why they think that people who go out and talk to everyone get all those votes, right? It's because their, their conception and imagination of the voting public in New Zealand is limited to what we had 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. And don't, they don't want a, a reimagination of that because their jobs rely on that not being the case. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if they see Robertson going and speaking in his deepest possible voice, his, his business voice that he puts on when he speaks to businesses, that becomes almost rumbly and incomprehensible. Uh, when they see him doing that, that's performed sensibility, right? It doesn't matter what words he's saying. He could be, he could be saying any numbers. He doesn't, they don't care if it's 2.5% or 8.1% under these fucking stats, right? It's not, it's not about that. But this is, what, this is what confuses me is that like, you know that, like Robertson essentially knows it on some level, like about why he's turning up to these things. Why go to the trouble of like creating all these series of rules um, and then legislating it? And I mean, the thing that frustrates me about this is that at the same time, all this effort going into, and this comes back to what we were talking about before with the squeezed middle, right? Like they're, they're trying to, um, you know, paint themselves as a, as a business friendly or like economically competent um, government. Um, but at the same time, eroding support from the very people who should be their natural base, right? Um, National aren't doing that. Like they you know, obviously target the middle classes as well um, and are trying to speak to people's more general frustration with the economic environment at the moment, but they still have a base, which is like the business, that business lobby, the the one that Labour are trying to target, right? Um, and so like they're not, it, it just seems so self-defeating to me that, you know, they're, they're throwing so much uh, energy, not into just like appearances, but restricting um, the the ambition of the budget, you know, I think that partly this is what it's about, right? It's like we can't. It's it's not just that we can't spend because um, of, you know, um, maybe resources around like enough nurses or enough teachers or enough, you know, uh, sort of infrastructure capacity or whatever. But I think it's also we can't increase spending or, or we can't have all these nice things because we have to look. Um, fiscally responsible to the business community, you know, and it's just it's in incredibly self-defeating. And for a government that um, pretends to have uh, lofty ambitions from time to time, it's it's always been telling that their first instinct um, in their actual, you know, nitty gritty of their, their plans is explicitly saying, um, when things get tough, we're going to handcuff our hands together. You know, we're going to tie one hand behind our back. That's how we'll win the fight. It's like, no, you, you are making things more difficult for yourself to solve these problems. And we're not saying that, to be clear, I'm sure none of us are saying that if they didn't have these spending constraints, they would solve the problems. That's a separate issue, right? They don't have the bravery or the, the vision to solve these problems. But it's even more telling that they're saying, you know, even work constraints different, like Paul said, even work capacity constraints different, even if more humans were here who uh, wanted to become nurses under lower conditions, all these kind of different labor issues, even if the supply of uh, construction materials were different, we don't intend to solve those problems at that pace. Like we don't have that level of that vision. We're explicitly ruling it out. It's foreclosing on the on the future we could otherwise have. Um, and they know, and they you know they they hark to um, the infrastructure deficit, uh, and that's why they have to do three waters, for example. But then, like, so we're doing all this stuff, but um, yeah, as you say, we're we're chaining ourselves to never be able to get past the infrastructure deficit because we will never put the government into deficit. We'll never borrow enough to make that happen. 
Mm. And this is why it was such a kind of status quo budget for me is like, I, I often, uh, when it comes to these things, I go to the back pages and do the nerdy spreadsheet thing and plug all the numbers in and stuff. But there's a couple of things in doing that exercise this time that I found were quite interesting. Um, so over the last kind of 10 years or so, um, real GDP growth. So basically, you know, the, the kind of overall production of the economy in, in real terms, so accounting for inflation, um, has outpaced real wage growth uh, pretty consistently by about one to two percentage points, right? And so what that kind of shows is a situation where, you know, workers are getting you know, roughly a, a proportion of the overall economic pie, you know, or economic output. Um, so that's been pretty consistent, that gap over the last kind of 10 years or so. Obviously, there's a, some fluctuations with COVID where, you know, we had a big economic kind of shutdown um, and wages are kind of sticky. So, you know, output dropped. But the, the, that trend, I think, kind of holds in more normal times. But then going into the next couple of years, Treasury have forecasted that basically that's going to sort of turn around uh, where real wages are going to all of a sudden shoot back up again. Obviously, inflation's they're, they're reasonably optimistically predicting is going to fall uh, quite quickly, I think. Well, Tre- Treasury just seemed like fucking low say. Like, they're, they're, <laughs> their forecasting is just like, why? Why is this going to happen? They're just making shit up to drive political narratives at this point. I, I won't hear anything else. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they got pretty panned for the um, the house price forecasting, you know, um, around the time that COVID first hit, uh, where I think they were predicting something like a 9% fall in house prices. And obviously, we'll know what happened. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's it's difficult to, like, even for a government, big government department, right, to, like, forecast all these different things that are going to happen to the economy. And, like, you can't, you're always, you're always limited as to how you can do that. But I think things like that are really telling because for me, like, what are we changing about the structure of the economy that all of a sudden is going to align real wage growth for workers with overall economic output? Like there's, I mean, maybe like fair pay agreements or something like that, right? But that's not going to like have that kind of effect, surely not, um, considering the amount of people that it's going to impact. And literally just trying to make claims about like, the labor market and that we need to support employers. Like they're literally just trying to set up a, a, the groundwork for national remaking those claims. And it's, it, it's, it seems to be becoming more and more barefaced. Yeah. And at the same time, like the other thing that I find makes that seem even more puzzling is that they are also forecasting interest rates, obviously to increase, right? The reserve banks increasing interest rates to address inflation. Uh, and what does that do? It takes demand out of the economy because it makes debt more expensive, so it reduces investment. That's the that's the idea. And what does that do? It increases unemployment, and that's also the idea. That's the intention behind this policy: is that inflation is too high, um, largely because of like the price of oil and supply chain constraints, right? Things that you know the Reserve Bank can't control by increasing interest rates yeah. in, in New Zealand. Um, and but so what they don't actually care about that. They're just like inflation is so high. We just need to ramp up interest rates and literally create more unemployment. And that for them is desirable, right? But how does that reconcile with a, a, an improvement, a miraculous improvement in the conditions for workers in this country? Like, yeah, it's going to I mean, this unemployment is going to reduce their bargaining power. And, you know, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. They're sense. literally contradictory. The forecast is contradictory to the, the changes made by the Reserve Bank. Mm-hmm. 
and you know maybe um if there are any sort of real economists that listen to this podcast they'll pan me for this later on or whatever but um i would love Welcome. to see an ex- i'd love to see an explanation as to like how how do those things reconcile because i like, i can't i can't quite see it happening i think one of the really interesting things for me just in a, in a political sense um coming out of this budget on the back of uh covid is that at this point i just have no idea what labor think their electoral input inputs are so we saw them carry us through the early covid phase um ensure that you know people could continue to keep their jobs um and get paid and survive uh and that took them to the biggest ever win by a New Zealand political party under MMP. And they've looked at that and said, oh, okay, um, let's never do that again. (laughs) And let's make it harder to do. And in the meantime, let's let COVID in as well, because that clearly had nothing to do with, with the vote. And, you know, they make all these claims about electability, like this is constant thing, all the Labour outriders, like you have to be electable. So this is why we have to open up the country. That doesn't make sense either. It's the same kind of contradiction as you're explaining around uh, the Treasury forecasting with uh, wage growth uh, alongside the driving up of unemployment. We have to be electable. We got elected on massive numbers because of X and Y. Let's never, let's not do X and Y. Mm. Yeah, let, let, let's not support our most vulnerable. Let's yeah. let's not continue to like keep COVID at a, a low level to ensure that the health system can function, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we'll we'll make a budget about it. And we yeah we we won't spend. You know we we won't help people. Mm. Um, and somehow that's going to deliver the votes to us. Exactly. Yeah. Like the kind of uh, the the contradiction or the contradictory nature of this budget being so much about like back to normal right they they really want uh they, they really want things to return to like this you know Graham Robertson and others keep talking about a post post-covid environment right it's just like we've got the most covid that we've that we've ever had in the country right now you know and all of a sudden we're post-covid they're so desperate to like shift on from that and I think this budget is kind of also an indicator of that it's like you know and you were talking about Clint Smith before Philip, I saw him like praising the largest spending reduction ever, you know, in this budget, which is just to me, it just seems absurd. Like this is, that's bad. Like that is a bad thing. You know, why are you, why are you t- trying to say that this is good, you know? And it's for the reasons that you're talking about, Kyle, is that this, it, it's, it's about electability, right? Or perceived electability. No, they want, they want Beth and Blockhouse Bay to keep voting for them, right? If, even though she wants to vote for, for Luxon. And like the problem is she wasn't voting for, Jacinda because of her specific measures to support business in a post-COVID world. She was voting for the Labour government because they made this big splashy kind of promise and then were following up on it. And that's something they've just steadfastly refused to do, like you're saying. Um, but that's the, I guess, yeah, that's the the trajectory that we're on is this this Labour Party that's completely self um, self-destructive in that way. But do you think, I mean, it looks to me like there's going to be a third term Clark style attempt to pull something out to hit a very specific demographic like interest-free student loans they're going to do that again next year I um, like I've, I've floated that for for a while that they're going to try and do that um maybe coming into mid next year so 
budget stuff next yeah. year I mean, um, as a full election bribe. Yeah, that looks most likely because there'll be uh, demographics that have completely lost faith in them and have no intention to vote for them anymore. Yeah, I think you'd need uh, you'd need a particular type of demographic to be won over by that at this point after these years of pretty determinedly doing nothing during global upheaval and record levels of... It's trouble. disgusting cynicism. Mm. And actually, I mean, something like you, you brought up interest student loans, and we were talking before about the, the dynamics of the, the uh, reduced operational allowance um, next, in the budget next year and this increased debt ceiling. That's actually something that could um, be a, a kind of go-to for labor um, is student debt cancellation. Um, and you know it'll probably be in a sort of timid labor style, but if they've got that's something that is going to uh, be felt immediately by people, or at least perceived to be felt immediately, right? Like they might see a reduced balance and like feel better about that. Um, that also might encourage them to, uh, you know, maybe make other spending decisions that they were otherwise postponing. Um, so it could have immediate economic impacts. Ah, uh, you mean drive inflation up? <laughs> I'm sure that's how national will argue it, although they'll argue yeah. it that it's, you know, economic incompetence for some, you know, myriad of reasons or whatever. But the, I guess, like, the, the opportunity is there for Labour if they want to use some of that debt ceiling, right, to uh, give, you know, an immediate benefit to the electorate and a large swathe of the electorate. Well. Probably many of the types of people, like young professionals or whatever that they're targeting, that could also be vulnerable to national and so on. Um, I'm really trying to sell debt cancellation to Labour here. <laughs> yeah, but this just, is just do it. But this is what I was. This is what I was wondering: is that what demographics is what I was going to ask? What demographics would that actually function for after five, six years of a government that has steadfastly refused to do enough on climate change and child poverty, yeah. which were the two big things coming yeah. in, right? So it's not going to be poor people because we've seen how much they care about poor people at every opportunity. They've refused to do it. So Kids Can came out yesterday and said highest level of child poverty in 18 years. You know, Jacinda came in saying this is the kind of my animating reason for being in politics. I am the minister of minister yeah. for over five years at this at this stage. We're talking about like next year, she's going in thinking about what she can present to the electorate. How plausible is that going to be? I think they would get her panned if she did anything about child poverty next election, because mm. it would only bring attention to the fact of how terrible they've been on it. So you can't hit them. You have to hit someone that they perceive as both swing voters, because that's how unimaginative the Labour government is. So someone like young professionals, right? and people who are worried about their future and are finding appealing the kind of arguments that National will obviously make about cost of living and lowering marginal tax rates or you know, pegging taxes to inflation or whatever they bring to the next election that's mostly gonna be roads because that seems to be all they, all they can promise. So it'll be someone like young people, right? Young, rich, urban liberals. I'm sure there will be some form of tax cut as well next year. Um, I don't quite know what it looks like. I mean, I. I would have thought that they would probably do something around tax brackets just because like, you know, they, they tend to follow national, like when national um, are going on and on about something for a long time, you know, it gets increasingly harder for labor to resist, you know, not doing yeah. something similar. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see something along those lines. I would be more surprised if there was any changes in GST. Um, I think the, what, what they should do, and we, we may even have an article up about this later today as well, um, is look at a, a tax shift where they give a significant tax cut to everyone below 100K uh, and make it, um, what do I say, fiscally neutral or whatever the fuck, 
by raising taxes on the on the super the super wealthy. Um, and there's I think there's an appetite for that. Um, most people who are voters are, are going to benefit from that. Uh, and the only people that won't benefit for it uh, is Peter Thiel. Uh, you know, or, or like that that level of um, so-called business person mm. uh, in New Zealand who are never going to vote Labour anyway. I just don't. I just don't see it happening. Like, no, I mean, no, I, I don't think they're going to do it. I think they should do it. Yeah, no, I know, I know. Um, I mean, you know, if we just look at capital gains tax and how they responded to that, like a policy that's got, I know I go on about this a lot, but <laughs> they, you know, it's got increasingly popular over the last um, few years in particular, obviously in response to um, people seeing the, the, you know, incredible inflation in house prices that has been happening. Um, and yet they've ruled it out, like for, you know, in perpetuity, like for no good reason, really. Um, and one of the really damaging things about this is uh, while they're in government and not in opposition is that national just gets to be completely disingenuous, run all these like, oh, we, we support poor people claims. Um, you know, most recently talking about how Labour's driving people over to Australia um, because of the cost of living um, and the, the just a chance for better pay uh, in Australia. All absolutely true. Um, and they're going to be getting votes from working class people because of that. Mm. Yeah, it worked for key, right? Yeah, uh, and and Labour aren't responding to that. They are responding to something imaginary. They're responding to like this imaginary, like pro business, uh, this imaginary idea that like your your middle New Zealander is like a pro business hawk. Um, no, they just like want to be able to live in the community and survive. Like, that's literally all it's going to take. And if we look back to 2020, um, you know, you're saying, Philip, what demographic do they try and appeal to here? One of the, one of the reasons uh, that Labour did so well is that turnout went up uh, because people wanted to ensure that the COVID response continued. Um, people are like, okay, cool, I've got this stuff. They've, they've delivered for me. And I'd like that to keep happening. I trust Labour to do this. I don't trust National to do it. There are a range of one-off targeted policies like free dental that they could also use in this election bribe um, that would get people to the polls because they're like, if Labour say they're going to do this in the first 100 days, I can get my root canal. You know, um, there, there's a, there are a range of things like that that Labour could table. Um, I, and it's not even at this point, it's not even about whether they have the courage to do it. It's whether they have the intelligence to do it. I, like, I'm not, I, I just have no idea what they're saying in the back room at this point. I just, I struggle to understand what they think the electoral state of play is because it doesn't make any sense anymore, the, the way that they're doing things. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm ready to like write off the hope for free, for free dental from this Labour government at the moment. Like, you know, in, um, in the 2020 election campaign, I think it was Chris Hipkins, um, who was Minister of Health at the time, said that, they wouldn't do it because of the because of current economic conditions, you know. And this is in twenty. It's just bullshit. Yeah, no, of course, of course it is. Yeah, but I mean, if they were unwilling to do it then, like before this, you know, fiscal tightening, before increasing inflation, um, you know, and before increasing a tax from a kind of um, from a national party that's you know in increasing their popularity, you know, and, and a tax coming from them around fiscal restraint and like. 
um, you know, addictions to spending and all this kind of ridiculousness, um, then, they're, then they're certainly not going to do it now, you know? Uh, and yeah, I mean, I just think it's also like and with, the, with that operational allowance as well next year that I think will make something like free dental or at least, you know, even sort of heavy subsidies, some kind of insurance uh, scheme or whatever more difficult um, considering the nature of that spending. But yeah, I'm, I'm also um, keen for us to touch on a little, like we've obviously focused basically almost entirely on labor and a bit of national, but I'm keen to talk a little bit about some of the other parties and their response to the budget and also kind of how it's been received more broadly. Um, and I mean, I, I haven't paid too much attention to this myself, so I'm keen to get your guys' thoughts as well, but ACT, are going hard on the uh, the brain drain kind of aspects, which they um, suggest is is going to come out of this budget uh, with people heading off to Australia and elsewhere. Um, and the Greens, I thought, were uh, had had their similar message where they support the budget, and obviously there's a lot a lot around climate in the budget and funding of the emissions reduction plan and so on. Um, but then like there was a couple of specific examples of where they wanted it to go much further. Um, Do they want it to go faster as well? Yeah, I, I really shouldn't, I really shouldn't use that uh, phrase. <laughs> I actually um, saw someone else uh, adopted as well recently. Wasn't maybe the Australian Greens? Oh, faster probably. You know, Wasn't it Andrew was... Yang? Hilarious. <laughs> well, it could have been Andrew Yang, yeah. Um, but the amendment to the, the cost of living payment um, that Ricardo put up as well, um, Ricardo, the, the Greens MP who've had on the show a couple of times. Uh, so, and this kind of speaks to your earlier point as well, Kyle, around labor and how they present themselves. But, and, and I guess it might've been you making this point, Philip, but how they're presenting themselves on child poverty is that this was a, a specific amendment that Ricardo and the Greens put up to change that, uh, eligibility of the $350 payment to extend it right to beneficiaries and superannuants. Um, great piece of politics, right? Because then Labour had to vote against it. You know, they couldn't just put up this budget and kind of like, you know, ambiguously sort of say, oh, it's going to go towards this, this middle section of the population. And, you know, they had to explicitly say, no, we're going to exclude these people. So, and then the kids can numbers came out like two days after. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so anyway, that's like, as ACT and the Greens, um, Te Pāti Māori, I think, had a more uh, direct message than the Greens uh, in, in opposition to the budget. Um, very clear on where it, you know, doesn't go, um, you know, far enough and so on. But but even, I don't know, there's, there's that kind of Greens message, which is like, this budget doesn't go far enough, right? Which to me implies that it's kind of broadly in the right direction. It's just like, we just want it to go further. Whereas Te Pāti Māori's message is more, it's kind of, kind of going in the opposite direction. You know, it's, it's entrenching like the existing inequities in the system. Uh, and that's a, that's a bad direction. Yeah. Uh, and I think like, it's a subtle difference in message, but I think it could be really important um, come election year. And, you know, whilst the Greens are doing, you know, good work on some of those specific areas as to where the budget needs to be better. Um, I think they're kind of, you know, one, one foot, one foot supporting it, one foot criticizing it um, approach can potentially, you know, be a bit confusing for voters and lead to a confused message. I don't know. That's my view anyway, but 
I yeah. I don't see any problem with, and you know, this is maybe surprising considering my my vitriol in general towards um, some of the political choices of, of the Greens. If we're looking at a, a Green Labour Maori uh, government next year, which you know has been floated here and there as a possibility. I'm okay with the Greens pulling Labour left and the Party Māori pulling the Greens left. I think that is like useful electorally um, because it gives you several levels of um, or two two or three levels of radicalism um, that is important for building political narrative uh, and buy-in among members of the electorate. Uh, So I, I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing as long as the Greens are offering up actual impactful policy alongside uh, any support that they give to Labour. And that's where I'm, until recently, I've seen a, a massive failure from the Greens, is that we know we know that policy exists. We know that there's like some fantastic Greens policy um, that is in their, um, you know, on their website. But, and, and you know, just recently, um, Gora's uh, Garamond's bill came up, um, which has a, a bunch of, really great uh, voting changes. But we're not seeing any of these lines pushed and pushed and pushed until they stick with the electorate um, around, you know, they'll, they'll try and do wealth tax stuff and they'll give up. They'll try and do X, Y, Z and, and they'll give up. It'll, it'll appear briefly, but it doesn't feel like there's a consolidation. And unless you have that, then just saying this doesn't go far enough isn't, isn't cutting it. Yeah, I mean... I agree with some of what you say, but I do think it's probably unfair to say that they've given up on the wealth tax stuff. Because I mean, that was that was a big um, policy pillar of theirs in 2020, right? But I do feel like they have carried that on throughout this term, where they've quite often, like whenever you know Labour have come up with some weak sort of proposal or whatever, they will often focus on, you know, we need to address the inequities in society, we need capital gains tax, wealth tax, blah blah blah. And kind of pivot to those housing, uh, housing sort of housing crisis kind of issues and th- those sorts of things. Um, but I do agree that like there needs to be more, you know, and kind of come back to the budget sort of thing. There needs to be more of a an alternative budget, like a, a broad package, right? Like what are they? What's their alternative budget essentially? Um, and they can tie the wealth tax to that, right? And say, no, of course. if we had a wealth tax, we'd have this much more to spend, and this is where we'd spend it. Exactly. Why aren't you doing that? Yeah. Yeah. If you get rid of child poverty with that, with a wealth tax. Totally. Yeah. And that's going to be important to, um, to note, like coming into next year. And I think there's been some kind of good signs this year. Like there was, I agree. Yeah. There's a commitment kind of recently to free public transport. And then I even, I think in the last election campaign, there was also a commitment to free dental. So like there's the, there's the bits and pieces that could contribute to a really great alternative package. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think, I see what you're saying around the benefits of Te Party Māori pulling the Greens from the left and, and that kind of, you know, mix of different left or left of Labour perspectives. But I do think that, yeah, I, I think the Greens um, could be more like, could stand more on their own in terms of like a left uh, um, sort of suite of ideas, you know, and and. and distance themselves from labor more i guess and like this budget i think was an opportunity to do that and i don't know if they did it in a broad sense like they did it on some of those specifics but yeah 
Um, and, you know, it's difficult because they're still polling well, right? So maybe there is, a, and I'm sure that there is like an aspect of public opinion that do like to see, you know, a Green Party that's in government and, you know, um, getting some action on climate change and so on. But, you know, it does remain to be, we haven't, we haven't really talked about the emissions reduction plan at all, um, but it does remain to be seen as to whether those initiatives that have, you know, come in, like in the Zero Carbon Act and so on, and, and the um, funding in this budget for climate initiatives will actually result in, you know, a significant reduction in emissions in the, in the coming years. Um, but nevertheless, in terms of the electoral calculations, yeah, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a risk for them, um, but obviously they also see the other way um, and distancing themselves from Labour as, as a risk, so... Like, I think, yeah, I think it's an interesting comparison, Carl, because what you're saying, I think, made perfect sense when there was mana. But I think, I think the mana, green, labor combo in opposition particularly worked pretty well. Um, obviously, it was very, like, personality-based, and there was a whole lot of issues around that, and the party was kind of had its own things going on. Um, but just the way Te Pāti Māori is set up now, it's, I think it's a very different proposition, like, what it's aiming for, because it sees itself quite self-awarely as like you know by and for Māori it's deliberately targeting the Māori seats so all of their headlines that they get are always very consciously aimed at you know top three to five issues that Māori voters care about they're very smart about that kind of stuff um so on a lot of things I don't think they're going to push the Greens very much because the Greens are going to see them playing in a different kind of playground right they're going to be like well our even our left-wing voters aren't going to be swayed by some of that some of that stuff that they're talking about uh, because the Greens still aren't doing great in Māori seats for the most part. Um, I think that gets over, I think that gets over pushed, but it is, it is the case that in most Māori seats, the Greens tend to underperform. Um, and it's, it's hard to kind of coalesce uh, a single spectrum if Te Pāti Māori, Te Pāti Māori might, might pull the Greens towards them on like particular kind of constitutional issues or some of the like land back stuff or like relationships with the state, some of that good kind of um, integration constitutional kind of questions or legal questions or maybe some justice stuff maybe I could imagine um, but in terms of like uh, big populist policies like free dental or something I don't think that's the kind of thing the Greens will be paying much attention to Te Pāti Māori on yeah I don't know about that to be honest like I mean I saw their like Debbie's speech in um, response to the emissions budgets uh, and she was very strong on, you know, like pointing out the Greens, you know, flaws around agriculture, for example, and agricultural emissions and, and that kind of middling position that they've taken where they want to do more, but they, you know, won't say that they want to bring them into the ETS, but they kind of, they would if it was only up to them. And, so, you know, so it's that, again, it's that really <laughs> kind of confused message. Um, and also the other thing was, I was quite impressed with um, Te Pāti Māori's performance around uh, the cost of living when, when Labour were bringing in the petrol subsidies and the PT subsidies originally, uh, there was some really sort of great lines of questioning and press releases around what they wanted to see. And so I thought that that did actually, you know, present like an, an alternative that is, you know, broader than some of those issues that you're talking about. Um, and that could actually like challenge both Labour, but also the Greens on yeah, and, and I guess in the Greens sense, you know, challenging them on being an, an actual, like, more of an opposition party to Labour rather than a, um, we agree, but we'd just like you to be 
slightly better. Yeah, yeah. I think um, just uh, before we wrap up this section, I, I want to be very clear uh, in regards to the other opposition parties, National and ACT. Mm. I guess New Zealand First kind of fits in there as well, the media trying to reestablish them. Um, is that basically everything that they say about this stuff is just a lie I, and, and very clearly a lie and very clearly uh, able to be disproved. And the only reason any of it's sticking is because the media is allowing them to stick it. It's we're in a very like anti-progressive political and media environment at the moment. It's it's horrific. Every other week, the National Act or one of their, you know, uh, offshoots uh, like Business New Zealand will just say something absolutely outrageous without any pushback by journalists or reporters, um, without any analysis, without any critique. And it will dominate the uh, the news for at least a week uh, as the wider kind of political environment tries to respond to it. That I think is going to be the ma- one of the major risks. Um, like off the, And you saw it with the budget as well. Um, but one of the major political risks is that out of expediency or just nepotism or whatever, national actor is just going to be able to lie their way into more votes. It's, it's incredibly frustrating to, to watch this happen again and again. I'm glad that we can sit down and have like an actual discussion of, about why the budget is bad and, and what some of the responses to it could be uh, and provide an independent, you know, left-wing progressive analysis of it because it just literally doesn't exist anywhere else at the moment. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they need both sides, right? And if you're looking at uh, polls, if you're a mainstream media organisation in New Zealand and you're looking at polls, you go, oh, it seems like people are pretty split between Labour and National. And, you know, you're 50 years old and you grew up with a bit of FPP and then MPP, MMP and you, you think you're pretty kind of uh, politically literate, but your imagination's been completely constrained and formed by living in Auckland or Wellington. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard, right? Because as we've talked about before, like, it's I don't think it's that uh, national is proposing any actual positions that are that popular. They've they've correctly identified that people are stressed about cost of living, inflation, um, all the kind of obvious things that have been clear for a while. Um, and Luxon hasn't put his foot in his mouth to the degree that some of their previous leaders have. And that's really made it hard for Axe because that's Axe ball game is like untrammeled kind of hard right talking points with a bit of kind of occasional liberalism thrown in to like keep some of the urban voters happy but then you know go to gun fairs in, in rural New Zealand or whatever try to kind of do both and they they did really well at that before but now Luxon's clawing those votes back without even trying so what do you do as act like you have to go more extreme but all your friends at the New Zealand initiative are voting for Luxon <laughs> it's an awkward position for them I, I don't see how they're going to get out of it and I don't think New Zealand first is going anywhere I'm happy to write off Winston um he's he's lost today the last five years like He's gone from one of the best political operators to just like an old man who's kind of sad and pathetic. He, he, um, he really needs to retire, but yeah. Um, yeah, interesting that that's now on the record that uh, Philip, Philip Nanestad of 1 of 200 has written off Winston Peters. I wrote him off a while ago. <laughs> we'll, see if, uh, we'll see if you hear your words next year. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully you don't. We'll see. <laughs> a quick point on the kind of media um, environment that you're talking about, Kyle. Uh, and I, I saw a really... Um, a really funny tweet that kind of encapsulated this I think there was some comments by Adrian Orr who's the um, Reserve Bank Governor uh, about inflation sort of comes back to what we were talking about earlier as well 
uh, and this debate as to whether government spending you know, or to the, the degree to which government spending is, is uh, pushing up inflation. And, and there was two, I can't remember the, the particular media outlets, but two of the big mainstream media outlets in New Zealand were running the story, right? Both on exactly the same comments. Um, and one of them, the headline was uh, something like, um, Reserve Bank Governor agrees that government spending is pushing up inflation. And then the other headline was Reserve Bank Governor says that government spending isn't pushing up inflation, you know? And it's, <laughs> so they've managed to like get completely opposite messages out of this really important, you know, comment by the Reserve Bank, which I mean, often like the media will try to dissect these comments by, you know, the Reserve Bank Governor and, and the Monetary Policy Committee in quite some detail, right? Because they often have these sort of, you know, messages about, you know, economic forecasts and what we're kind of in store for over the next couple of years sort of encoded into them. Um, but I found it a really kind of, uh, you know, good um, good anecdote for the, the media, the level of media conversation that we're having, you know, like you're, you're talking about, Kyle, and the, the actual um, getting into the issues when, when you can have two major outlets reporting this comment, like, so completely differently. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and a, and a real um, contrast with the, we're going to report this, politician verbatim PR line because it's expedient as opposed to we're going to rewrite it and editorialize because it's expedient. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like the media have forgotten that their job is also to analyze, you know, and it's, it's not even so much like it, it, reports in the mainstream news for me in New Zealand seem to get bucketed into like reporting. So like you're saying, regurgitating PR lines often. And I mean, you know, sometimes like the gold standard that we can expect of them is like, Here's what one politician saying, but here's what another politician saying, and here's what some group saying, whatever. And they, they present different perspectives. So that's the sort of reporting side. But then there's like opinion, which is just some I don't know hack or some you know New Zealand Institute economist like you know or an actual National Party MP. Yeah, I, I don't or, know. Yeah, totally. Or Labour MP, whatever. Yeah, or you know Business NZ or like someone, and you know it'll be byline opinion, and then there'll just be a, be a, a whole sort of. Headline, um, yeah. Jacinda eating more babies than last year, <laughs> refuses to deny it. Yeah, it would just be garbage, you know. And like those are the two types of journalism that we seem to have in this country. And it's like there's, you know, there's a third way. Um, <laughs> oh, can, Paul's calling for third way. All right. Yeah, we, well, we can have this reporting that actually also analyze, okay, well, why might this particular party be saying this? You don't have to, like, be totally committed to a particular ideological Kind of framework or whatever but you can speculate or like try to link ideas together you know as to why particular people might be having particular views hey, anyway that's that's my media rant but i think it's a good point Kyle, that you raise yeah um also it's kind of like a soft promo for one of 200 uh yes. the only left-wing independent media politics podcast uh please help <laughs> uh go go to our patreon give us money and we can, can get more stuff out hey thanks so much for joining us everyone that's been the budget episode uh, if you're listening on on podcast, uh, you can also find articles and, and what how um, over at one two hundred dot nz. If you're listening on Manawatu People's Radio, uh, thanks for tuning in. You can find a, a few more episodes over at the website as well, or on uh, any given podcast app. There are midweek episodes that don't always make it to radio, so go and have a listen to those. Thanks again so much for listening, everybody. We really appreciate our audience um, and everyone that that shares us around and, and lets people know that we're out here and exist. That's been another week of One of 200. We'll catch you next time.
relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism No, you don't hate Mondays You hate capitalism